Welcome to the third episode of the Senko Audio Documentary. In this episode, we're going to be talking about something called social procurement. I think I just wanted to tell a quick story to just demonstrate that. So in the beautiful bailout, I'm talking about this Indian agent named William Graham. He's writing in 1905 in his diary. And he's looking out his window one day, this is 1905 in Southern Saskatchewan, near the Capel Valley. He's like, oh, there's a moose hunter coming out of the bush. And he's, he goes out, sees the moose hunter, goes and tells everybody in the community that he shot a moose. And um, 15 women uh, get the message. They go out to the moose, take the hide off, cut it in 15 equal pieces and bring it back to the community. And they do this crazy thing called sharing it. And William Graham, the Indian agent, he says in his diary, how peculiar, what a strange thing to do is to share the harvest. This is a good example of how an indigenous economy, very sophisticated, valued the solution, whereas the Western economy embodied by the Indian agent thought that the solution should not be valued and that we, we should, some people should have more and others should have, have less. So this whole process is about rebuilding economies where solutions matter. That's Sean Loney, a serial social entrepreneur from Winnipeg, Manitoba, who you'll hear from more throughout the episode. To provide a bit more context around this story, I want to highlight an excerpt from a book called Marketplace Revolution by David LePage. David LePage is the managing partner of Buy Social Canada, a national organization focused on social procurement and social enterprise consulting based in Vancouver. In his book, David discusses how a sharing economy is not a new concept. Indigenous peoples across Canada have been doing this for many, many years. He says, Thousands of years ago in North America, there was an indigenous community-based marketplace based upon fairness and equality of trading. Coastal communities traded with prairies and northern communities traded with southern ones, exchanging goods, bringing value to each other and sustaining healthy communities for both partners. But then Europeans arrived. They brought with them a new model of trading and exchange based on Western European capitalism. This new model of trading was built on extraction of value from the land and labor. Economic value was the winning value. In North America, business growth was pursued by these misguided principles, policies, and practices. It was deemed okay to allow genocide against indigenous peoples and to appropriate their lands in the name of new market opportunities. Slavery was considered essential for a profitable cotton crop and cheap raw materials for the growth of industry. The mining of coal in any efficient method, regardless of the environmental damage, was considered okay. These practices powered the founding of the capitalist machine. Welcome to the third episode of the Senko Audio Documentary. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about something called social procurement. And if you don't know what that is, trust me, it's actually very exciting. And it's relevant to so many of the world's most pressing social issues. And we'll get into that soon, but first I wanted to share a bit about my journey exploring this work and how I've come to realize just how essential it is. It's been a while since we released our first two episodes, so for a quick recap, 
SENCO stands for the Social Enterprise Network of Central Ontario, and it's an initiative of the Centre for Changemaking and Social Innovation at Georgian College. I'm your host once again, Jenna Stevanato, and I'm currently the project coordinator of SENCO. I'm also a social enterprise development support consultant, working with the amazing Ellie Green, who actually built out SENCO from 2017 to 2020. And back in 2019, I graduated with my Bachelor of Business Administration with a focus in marketing and social enterprise. I also want to acknowledge that I am a white woman situated on the traditional land of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, Mississauga, and Huron-Wendat nations. I'm speaking from my own experience and from the research and learning that I've done throughout this project alongside my team. Most of the topics I'll be talking about have strong roots in Indigenous and Black history, and I'm going to strive to honour that in the way that these ideas and concepts are communicated in this episode and also in life and work. I recognize that a lot of the work myself and others are doing today is work that communities have been doing for hundreds of years, and I'm grateful to be in a position to learn from the work already done and contribute to a more equitable and just economy and planet. In this episode specifically, we'll be hearing a lot from the Ashoka Fellow and project partner, Sean Loney, but we know there are many other BIPOC voices to hear from on this subject. And so I wanted to just share some specific resources that have inspired me personally and also inspired the content of this episode. The first is a book called Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice, and that's written by Jessica Gordon-Nembard. The second is the story about the freedom quilting bee, which took place during the civil rights movement. And that's a book written by Nancy Callahan. And lastly, one of my favorite podcasts is called Code Switch, which is hosted by journalists of color who talk about race in all contexts of modern society. So I encourage anyone to check out those resources and also to explore some of these topics even further. So what is social procurement? I thought it'd be good to hear from an expert first. So here is Liz Chick from BiSocial Canada, who chatted with us about her work in the field and how she defines social procurement. Social procurement, put most simply, is leveraging a social value from the things that we're already purchasing. Um, So everything that we buy has an economic, an environmental, and a social impact. And when we're talking about practicing social procurement, we're really just being conscious of what that social impact is and leveraging that to be a positive social value. And to clarify what we're talking about when we say positive social value, we mean an improvement to the well-being and overall health of a society, specifically the communities and the people who are impacted by economic and social systems. Another way to think about social value is community benefit, which is another term you'll hear throughout this episode. So I think uh, sometimes when we think of social procurement, we think of it as being very complex and maybe not quite understanding the processes. And so that's why I found it really helpful to really at its simplest form think, we're already buying stuff, there's gonna be a social impact let's be conscious of that and once you start sort of start from that baseline it becomes a lot easier to think about okay what is my role in this procurement process so essentially social procurement is making a purchase 
while considering not just the price, but also the social and environmental impact of that purchase. And these purchases can happen at an individual, corporate, institutional, or government level. And so for government purchases, um, a really helpful way of framing it is that there's already other goals that they're trying to achieve. They may have poverty reduction strategies, um, equity strategies, diversity and inclusion strategies. Social procurement isn't something extra to add to your plate. It's actually helping you to achieve the goals that you're already trying to achieve. Let's go back to David LePage's book for a moment. He says the following about the scale of government procurement in Canada. The federal government alone purchases over $20 billion a year in goods and services, and with provincial and municipal spending, it adds up to over $40 billion a year. If only 2% of this procurement is awarded to social enterprises that hire people with barriers to employment, 15,000 people who don't currently have access to the labor market could be employed at any one time. I think it's important to note here the implication of collective impact and taking a holistic approach to social procurement. Many social enterprises in Canada are small businesses, nonprofits, and charities. As individual entities, the potential impact may seem small, but when we consider all of these organizations collectively working to create change, we not only have impact at a greater scale, but also with a wider range of outcomes. And this is what David LePage often describes as community capital, which is a model of community wealth building that includes not just economic wealth, but also human, social, environmental, and physical capital. To put all of this into perspective, let's consider what this looks like in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Canada, Vancouver's downtown east side. Bisocial Canada released an impact report in 2019 that identified over 75 social enterprises in the community focused on employment, culture, environment, and community economic development. These social enterprises produced a $63 million economic impact in the local economy. Over 2,800 jobs were created, most of which were filled by workers who overcame barriers to employment. And based on the estimated social return on investment, almost $74 million of value is created by the community for the community. So when organizations like these can access that government spending, even if only 2%, the collective impact is huge. When I was in my second year of business school, I started noticing just how prevalent the profit motive was in my classes. One of the most influential North American economists, Milton Friedman said, quote, there's one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, end quote. This is what was taught to us in our classes. When I heard this, I thought there has to be another way to do well financially without exploiting people or the planet. And that's when I discovered social enterprise and finally, I was able to put these pieces together. And this alternative way of participating in the economy actually made more sense to me than the traditional capitalist business model. When I had an opportunity to work out in Vancouver with Bisocial Canada, I started seeing how procurement at an institutional level has the potential to achieve systemic change. It gives people who have either been excluded or displaced by the Western economy access to capital and markets that traditional capitalism did not provide. 
And once I understood how this way of buying and selling could benefit people and communities, I had to pursue this further. And then I learned that this was how trade or business operated in the first place. We departed from such a sustainable and equitable model to an extractive and exclusive model. One of my colleagues actually refers to social procurement as a restorative practice, and she's right. This isn't a new thing. It's an effort to reintroduce the community-based values that were once embedded in business and economics. Here's my colleague, Ashley Addison. In our communities, me being like, you know, the child of immigrants who came here, we used to always send back stuff to, to like, you know, our country all the time. So whatever we do here, whatever money we make, whatever thing we buy, we, sh we used to ship barrels. And if you have any Caribbean friends or anything, you know all about barrels. <laughs> we all have to pack the barrel. And the, uh, my friend, you know, and I always laugh, the barrel guy would come and he'd ship it over to our families, you know, in our countries. And like, that is how we work together. Like whatever we have, we give it back to our communities. We're here in Canada, it doesn't matter. We want it to go back to our communities. And a lot of cultures do this already. So that's why for me, social enterprise is a restorative practice. We've always given back to our communities. So it's like, it has to start there. And I see that how easy it could make a difference in, in our lives if we all just, you know, purchased from each other, supported each other. Over the last year and a half, I've been working with a team to deliver a project focused on social procurement called the Community Benefit Purchasing Project. The purpose of this project is to support the growth of social enterprises and diverse suppliers and provide tools for purchasers to explore and practice social procurement. Basically, we want to support purchasers to access resources or create them so they can divert more public and private funds towards organizations that are working to create positive social change. The project is funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation and it's a partnership project between Ashoka Canada, which is an organization that inspires social innovation all over the world, and Georgian College. Our delivery team is led by Ellie Green, along with supporting consultant Ashley Addison, who you just heard from. Ashley will be joining us later in the episode to talk more about this project we've been working on. So we kicked off this project last fall of 2020 by collecting data in the Central Ontario region on existing social enterprises and diverse owned businesses, so that when purchasers are seeking these types of suppliers to buy from, we have a comprehensive directory for them to access. We also hosted a series of virtual sessions where we chatted with some experts in the field, including Sean Loney, Buy Social Canada, and AnchorTO. They talked about their experience with social procurement and their advice for purchasers and suppliers looking to implement social procurement practices and policies evaluate impact, or simply bid on contracts that have social procurement opportunities. The interesting thing about Sean Loney's approach is that he sees the government as the client. Uh, poverty is not about poor people. It's about the failure of systems that they're interacting with. Um, so one of the big surprises then for me was that um, what how, how I come to see this movement is really about um, turning government from a funder into uh, into a customer. And the reason is because most of the work that social enterprises 
and nonprofits do, the financial beneficiary is actually government. But um, if we're not finding ways to capture that value uh, that we're providing to government or to its institutions, then we're really giving away what is our most lucrative um, outcome. Sean Loney is someone who has spent over 15 years working in the social enterprise sector. He has co-founded and mentored 12 successful social enterprises and is currently the senior partner of Encompass Co-op, where he works with First Nations, nonprofits, and governments to promote social innovation. Sean is also an author. His first book, An Army of Problem Solvers, introduces social procurement and its potential to solve complex social problems. And in his most recent book, The Beautiful Bailout, he takes the idea of social procurement to a whole new level. He discusses how social innovation is a convergence of many things at the same time. We have the disruptive social enterprise business model. We have important conversations happening around reconciliation. We have multi-billion dollar foundations that are now offering additional funds to social purpose businesses. We have young people wanting to find careers that align with their values. And we have governments that are exhausted from managing expensive social problems. So when we see all these things converging, what it is saying to me is that this, this thing called social innovation, it's about to explode. And, and I, I can see it already. Things are very different now than they were only a few years ago. And um, how we understand the tools of social innovation are critically important. Throughout his book, The Beautiful Bailout, Sean uses his experience working on the ground with social enterprises to demonstrate how this convergence comes to life. And over the last year or so, we had the opportunity to hear from Sean directly about how he came to recognize the value of the outcomes that those social enterprises were achieving and how that value needed to be captured. Here's Sean. I helped to start a social enterprise in Winnipeg's inner city in 2006 called Build, B-U-I-L-D. And uh, it's a, a nonprofit, but we do, we do trades-based work uh, in Winnipeg. And um, we hire a lot of people with, uh, with barriers to employment. So the purpose of the business uh, isn't so much the business part, it's the nonprofit part, uh, helping people gain access to the labor market. When, when I was still working there a few years ago, we had 100 people on the payroll. So we're doing a lot of work for Manitoba Housing. Manitoba Housing is owned by the government of Manitoba. And so why would they want to do business with BUILD? Because we hire their tenants, because we lower incarceration, social assistance costs in other areas of government. So it's a value proposition to, to, to governments to do business with social enterprises. Every year, Manitoba Housing buys $6 million worth of trade services with several social enterprises. Sean explains how that scale of spending is being accessed by the social enterprise sector. It, it involves stepping outside of the traditional procurement process. And the way that works is it usually how governments determine the market rate is they'll put out a tender and say, you know, we want this building built and the, the lowest price from the most qualified bidder is going to get the job. Um, and what, social procurement recognizes is that in order to extract these additional benefits, the procurement must be done differently because social enterprises, 
we're hiring people that are entry level to the labor market. So we don't want to build big buildings. We want to do the drywall in the building or we want to do the painting or the cleaning or the garbage removal. We want to do those entry level jobs, which prepare people for the labor market. Yeah, so I think that's my advice to procurement officers is go to social enterprises, ask them what it is they can do uh, on a job, and then try to find alternative market price mechanisms to find out what to pay them and, 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 and negotiate a contract based on that, on that market rate. So it's really a process of moving procurement from lowest price to best value and who wouldn't want to buy something and get the best value out of it. And it's not about special treatment. It's about fair competition and it's about social enterprises, not giving away our outcomes. And it's about procurement officers leveraging these additional benefits on behalf of whomever they're spending the money. In his book, Sean also gives examples of social enterprise happening in other countries and compares them to what's happening in Canada. So in Scotland, there's 5,600 social enterprises. Half of them hire people with barriers to employment. Two-thirds are led by women. And the average CEO of those companies makes two and a half times as much as the average worker. Now, in Canada, our biggest employers, virtually none of them hire people with barriers to employment. Only two out of 100 are led by women, and the CEO makes 209 times as much as the average worker, and that's before stock options. So why, if if your government or in the governmental sector or in the institutional sector, you can see the value of doing business with social enterprises, addressing our chronic issues like income inequality, gender inequality, and these huge segments of society, i.e. refugees, i.e. Indigenous folks who don't have access to the labor market and leveraging all these additional benefits. So back to, to, to Scotland, just for a minute. Um, this is a fascinating picture. So this is at lunchtime. It's a, at a social enterprise near Glasgow. Uh, and as you can see there, the, it's an electronics recycling enterprise called Haven Industries. Haven Industries is all over the UK. And um, this is a management team there, but you can't get a job at Haven Industries unless you have a criminal record. Now, those electronics that you're looking at, I asked them, who is your biggest customer? Listen to this. The biggest customer is the Scotland police. Uh, So the police are, are procuring a service called electronics recycling in such a manner so as to reduce crime. So we've heard a bit about what's going on in other parts of the world, but what about right here in central Ontario? An organization in Barrie, Redwood Park Communities, who we chatted with in the first episode of the audio documentary, is working with Sean Loney and the city of Barrie to capture the value of the social services they provide. So I was sitting in the mayor's office, Mayor Lehman's office in Barrie uh, after a Senko event. And the mayor says to me, yeah, we have 400 of our homeless people 
are regularly in contact with emergency services. And I'm like, well, okay, I, I don't come from that sector. What does that mean? He said, well, these 400 folk, these one, uh, these 400 folks, each of them will see emergency services 43 times a year. Holy shit. Well, wait, how much is that? 43 times what? Is well, on average, it works out to $3,000 per contact. So 43 times a year times $3,000 per contact times 400 people. Wow. That's a massive amount of money that the system is using to manage this problem called homelessness. Redwood Park Communities offers housing and wraparound support to people experiencing homelessness. And providing these services isn't cheap, but it's a fraction of the cost of managing the problem, which is often the government strategy. Sean talks about how social procurement can be used as a tool to sell the government something they desperately need and want, a reduction in workload. Because governments have made it perfectly clear they're not interested in reducing homelessness. If they were, they would have done it a long time ago. They're not interesting in, interested in employment on First Nations. They're not interested in climate change. They're, they're not interested in reducing diet-related diseases. They're not interested in reducing kids in care. None of those things matter to them. But they are very interested in reducing the costs associated with all of those things. So here's what we're selling right now. We're negotiating procurement agreements with these systems. We're gonna to sell to the Barry police a reduction in arrests and dispatch. We're not selling them a reduction in homelessness. We're, we're selling to them what supportive housing does, which is in the case of uh, the, the, the justice ministries, uh, reducing the number of nights in jail or reducing court appearances. And this is what the procurement model looks like. So we need to reorient these systems away from the expense of managing of problems towards the less expensive solving of the problems. And both social procurement as we traditionally understand it and the selling of outcomes. What Sean is pushing for here is technically called outcomes purchasing, which is one approach to social procurement. This is the idea of selling the government the outcome of workload reduction and overall cost savings. And it's clear that the impact of these various models of social procurement can be significant. And when we consider the big picture, it makes logical sense. And so that begs the question then, why isn't everyone doing this? Why don't all post-secondary institutions have a social procurement policy? Why don't social enterprises and diverse suppliers regularly get selected for contracts? If it's a no-brainer, why is the system still resistant to this shift? And this is when we get into the tough stuff. Yes, it's important work, but it's also very difficult because we're trying to change a system that has done something a certain way for a very, very long time. And it's a system that was designed from the beginning to put certain people at an advantage and oftentimes at the expense of other people or communities. Now, as it relates to First Nations, and I think the same can be said of inner city uh, communities or neighborhoods that are struggling economically that 
what is the effect of the tendering process is a guarantee that companies are going to be brought in from the outside. And what we need is government tendering processes that will support the reemergence of these local economies. Why do First Nations have so many boil water advisories? Well, the answer is quite simple, because the tendering process. They're bringing in companies from the outside, they build a water treatment plant, and no one locally has any idea how to run the damn thing or how to maintain it, nor is there a financial incentive for them to do it. And their capacity isn't built up and then they leave and eventually the system breaks down. So the tendering process actually does a disservice to taxpayers and a disservice to the environment and a disservice to Indigenous communities. As much as we can see the benefits and potential of a social procurement model, it's important to take into consideration the historic context of this system and how it was designed. There's an organization in the U.S. called Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Recently, they released a resource guide called Advancing Racial Equity and Transforming Government. In this guide, they talk a lot about inequities specifically within government contracting and procurement. Prior to the civil rights movement, procurement policies could explicitly exclude certain people, most prominently people of color and women. So of course, contracts were not equitably distributed. And although overt discrimination became illegal when the Civil Rights Act was passed, procurement policies and practices still to this day perpetuate racial inequity because it was embedded in the design. A while ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts called Team Human, which is all about bringing humanness back into our social lives and our economic lives. And one of the guests being interviewed was Dr. Jessica Gordon Nembard, who is an American political economist specializing in community economics and black political economy. And she was speaking about the history of black economic practice and how capitalism actually separated humanness from economics. And I just wanna share a couple of quotes from her that really impacted how I think about institutional and systemic racism and how policies like social procurement policies can be a tool to bring humanity back into these systems in the way that business is done. Dr. Nembard says, we can have economic democracy and economic justice for everybody, but we have to be very deliberate about it. We really need to be sure that we understand it's not just about diversity and inclusion. We have to think hard about what happens in our everyday interactions. She continues on to say, it takes a lot to just dismantle the capitalist system, but then to rebuild the system we really want, we have to make sure not to reproduce the institutional racism and not to allow the stereotypes that come so naturally to all of us. We have to really examine ourselves so that we don't bring that baggage into the new structures. I think her perspective really made it clear just how ingrained institutions are with the traditional capitalist mindset. But it also gave me hope that change is possible if we do the work and ensure we are not carrying over that indirect bias and racism that is embedded in the design of these systems. As I mentioned earlier, I've been working with a team on the Community Benefit Purchasing Project. And I wanted to focus on this for a moment because it's been a significant learning curve for myself and for everyone else involved too. So I thought it would be great to bring back my incredible colleague, Ashley Addison, to talk about the experience with me. Ashley is a project manager who's been working on the Community Benefit Purchasing Project delivery team over the last year and a half, 
specifically overseeing the data collection. Hey, Ashley. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. So as part of the two-year project, our team supported a pilot, working with a few managers at Georgian College and the purchasing team, looking at how they purchase goods and services within their own departments. And Ashley, you were pretty involved in this pilot, right? Yeah, so we had been working with the Georgian College managers over the last year, where we asked them some of their goals and how they could incorporate social procurement into their purchasing uh, for their departments. A lot of the purchasing managers were looking to order swag. And so we decided this would be a great entry point um, for social enterprises and diverse suppliers to begin their social procurement journeys. We had been working with a couple of them already, so we knew um, what kind of matchmaking we could do between the purchasers and the suppliers that we had in our directory. So how that was done was uh, by creating a weighted scoring model, which means that we give points based on the different categories and whoever scored the highest would be awarded the contract. Yeah, and there was a really great group of managers at the college who worked so hard on the scoring model, you know, to incorporate not just those economic goals, but also the social goals and the environmental goals. And, you know, ultimately, I think the purpose was to see if a social enterprise or diverse supplier could be successful in this new scoring model. And I think that was something that you know, everyone working on this was really excited about and hopeful for even. However, despite our collective effort, a social enterprise or diverse supplier didn't actually end up winning the contract. So what did that actually feel like getting that result? Um, For me, that felt like a bit of a loss because we're trying to prove how easy it was to implement this and, you know, um, create, you know, an inclusive, accessible space. And it ended up not being what we, what we had hoped for. It was this moment that really highlighted for me the complexities in shifting an organization to a successful social procurement framework, one that works to actively include the people for which it was designed for. And from your perspective, Ashley, why do you think that we got this result? A lot of risk aversion was featured in the selection process where maybe people, it will take people some time to get out of their comfort zone and that like muscle memory of using the same criteria. Because if we keep doing the same things, we end up with with the same results. Yeah, I wish that, I wish that it wouldn't, I wish it didn't seem so hard. I wish we could just do it because the, the, the impact on our communities would just be huge. I talk earlier in the episode about that just like this feels like a no-brainer so why isn't everyone doing this and why is this such difficult work you know the whole thing makes sense and it feels simple and easy but for some reason it's not and I think that's such a testament to like the deep roots of capitalism and colonialism way back those were the decisions that were made. And so we're still practicing the same thing. Yeah, it's embedded in white supremacy because really what it is, it's a power shift. It's a universal paradigm shift and power shift. And people aren't ready to give up their power. They know that's what's going to happen. You know, they're afraid of, 
of change because it benefits them. It completely benefits them to work with a supplier that looks like them, acts like them, thinks like them. Um, there's just a lot of fear around doing the wrong thing. And by being afraid to do the wrong thing, they do the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it became very clear just how easy it is to revert back to those um, traditional practices and going back to, you know, lowest price wins. Yeah. And you you do it realizing that, hey, like I'm kind of playing it safe here by sticking to what I know because this new process feels different to me. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. There was a lot of feedback in which people weren't sure. And um, to your point about risk aversion, you know, you can frame it as risk aversion or you can frame it as you're actually being proactive because, you know, maybe it seems risky right now but if you actually take that next step and be proactive in who you're buying from what their practices are and really looking into that then that actually is going to to be a benefit to you in the long term i think it's probably just educating people 100 percent and seeing like okay like this is what we need to do going forward and this is why once you get to the the reason of why all of these policies and processes write themselves. Yeah, exactly. So if we were to run the pilot again, what would you want to do differently? Um, maybe a more open uh, selection process or, you know, something that required more of a discussion so people could actually challenge the way that they they think or their decision making. Or it's like, okay, so you want to give this supplier five points for diversity or five points for environmental, why why do you think they deserve this? And then by hearing their responses, you might understand more of the ways in which they're thinking and you can either challenge them or you, know, you could uh, understand for future processes. It really was a balancing act between doing what we've known to be fair practice and implementing what we've learned are equitable and sustainable goals that actually lead to the best value. This moment made me truly understand the complexity of the systems we're working within, and it was very discouraging. But I wanted to talk about this because this is the reality and there's going to be failure. Institutional change takes a long time and it takes commitment to change at every level. Something called change management is a term that came up while chatting with Liz from Bisocial Canada, and she talks about this being a key step in implementing social procurement policies and procedures at the institutional level. Here's Liz. It is easy to sort of pass a policy and and think, great, we've got that in place, it's just going to happen. But there is a change management process. It really, it does require learning um, internally at the organization to understand what does this mean? What is social procurement? How does this affect the processes that I have been implementing? Um, And there's a learning process needed on the supply side as well. There is a a time that's needed for the supply side to understand what the opportunities are going to be. Maybe for some of the supply side who have never responded to RFPs because they didn't think that they had a chance of winning them before, um, for them to learn what the bidding process looks like. So I think one of those challenges is recognizing that 
there is going to be that process needed and really building that in to the planning of passing a policy or passing a framework is recognizing that just passing it's not going to be enough. You need to have that sort of change management piece built in. All right, so we've covered a lot here, but I think it's important to come back to why we continue to do this work. We know it's not easy, and we know the complexities that are associated with it. So is it worth it? Since the pilot with Georgian College, we've actually seen a lot of positive outcomes. It brought to the surface what gaps still exist and how we need to address them. Our team was able to collaborate across various departments at the college and collectively seek out additional value in the purchases being made. Even though we didn't successfully achieve this pilot social procurement goal, insightful data was captured that can now be used to improve the process and ensure more value is achieved in the future. The social procurement process is not linear, nor is systems change, not even close. But it's been so exciting to see firsthand the collaboration and progress made so far, and to feel hopeful of a more equitable, sustainable, and just economy. So we need to, I think, change that equation and um, rebuild economies where solutions matter. But solutions ain't going to matter unless we value the outcomes. And that's the game that's at foot right now. And uh, I love that story about the, about the Moose Hunter because he says, how peculiar. And I'm thinking, buddy, how peculiar that 75% of people when they get out of jail are back in contact with the justice system within two years. How peculiar that 75% of our healthcare spending is on diseases where diet is a main risk factor and there's nothing happening as any significance around healthy food. How peculiar that in Manitoba there's 10,000 Indigenous kids in care with almost no supports for the parents. How peculiar that we're using a massive amount of fossil fuels when there's renewables that on their life cycle are cheaper than the fossil fuels themselves and so on and so on. So we say to William Graham, the Indian agent, we say, not you, sir, we say how peculiar. And we're here to build this economy where people matter, where the environment matters, where love, compassion, and kindness actually mean something. Thanks for listening to part three of the Senco audio documentary. This episode was supported by the Community Benefit Purchasing Project, which was funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation and was a partnership project between Ashoka Canada and Georgian College. The Ashoka Changemaker Campus Fellow Collaboration Fund also supported the creation of this episode. The script was written by me, your host, Jenna Stavanato, with editing assistance from the EG team, Ellie Green and Ashley Addison, and producers of this episode, Angela Shackle and Braden Labonte from Accounts and Records. I'd also like to thank our expert guests, Sean Loney and Liz Chick for their contributions, as well as all of the referenced authors, speakers, and hosts for their efforts in moving this work forward.